this period, Mark Twain emerged as a particularly vituperative critic of imperialism. He said that Americans who were fighting in foreign wars were using a bandit's musket under a polluted flag. In fact, he wanted to change the flag of the United States to replace the stars with skull and crossbones symbols. Uh, so I feel now that we've bleached the image of Mark Twain. We've made him too much into a pleasant dinner guest, when actually uh, he was not a friendly dinner guest at all, as Theodore Roosevelt came to realize. That's Stephen Kinzer, and this is Alternative Radio. I'm David Barsamian. Welcome to this special 4th of July program featuring Stephen Kinzer on Theodore Roosevelt, Mark Twain, and American Empire. Why has the United States intervened so often in foreign lands? What are its origins? Having expanded its borders largely through its destruction of indigenous peoples, the U.S. went on to project its power globally. Today, its empire of bases rings the earth. According to Monthly Review, the U.S. has at least 800 military bases located in 85 countries. Historically, military interventions and invasions have been a bipartisan affair. Republicans and Democrats will at the most only question tactics. It wasn't always that way. There was a period in U.S. history when there was a fierce debate about Washington's use of force around the world. It centered on two factions, one led by Theodore Roosevelt and the other by none other than Mark Twain. The themes and debates of the past resonate today. The names change, but policy is fairly constant. To talk about these issues is Stephen Kinzer. He was a New York Times correspondent and bureau chief in Nicaragua, Germany, and Turkey. He currently teaches at Brown University. He's the author of many books, including Overthrow, All the Shah's Men, The Brothers, and The True Flag. This classic from the AR archive was recorded in 2017 at Brown. And now, Stephen Kinzer. We have never had a president before who was destitute of self-respect and of respect for his high office. We've had no president before who was not a gentleman. We've had no president before who was intended for a butcher, a dive keeper, or a bully. No, those words were not written this week. That's Mark Twain talking about Theodore Roosevelt. They were marvelously matched antagonists at the end of the 19th century. Uh, in some ways, they were quite different. Uh, Roosevelt believed that war was the only suitable pursuit for a man or a nation. At one point, he actually wrote to his bosom friend, Henry Cabot Lodge, speculating on whether it would be possible to arrange for Germany to bombard and burn some cities on the east coast of the US so the United States could get more actively involved in a war. Mark Twain was quite different. Mark Twain had traveled to places where European imperialism was well-rooted. He had seen the results in places like South Africa, India, the South Seas. Uh, and he had a very different view of what the role of imperialism was. 
On the other hand, in a certain way, they were well-matched and, and equal. They, they were both activists and writers as well as thinkers, and both of them were, created their own personas. They had great egos, and they invented themselves. These were people who could never turn away from a crowd or a photographer or an interviewer. Aware of each other's popularity, they never attacked each other in public. But we know from their writings and their comments uh, what they really thought of each other. So Twain described Roosevelt as clearly insane. <laughs> and undoubtedly the most formidable disaster that has befallen the country since the Civil War. Roosevelt returned the favor by saying he would like to skin Mark Twain alive. Now, what were they arguing about? They represented two poles in an argument that consumed the United States 120 years ago and that still consumes us. All of our foreign policy choices in the United States could be reduced essentially down to one word, which is intervention. We're always trying to figure out where do we intervene in the world, when, with what tools, under what circumstances, with what goals. We imagine that we're coming up with new arguments and that this is our new debate, but actually the, this debate is actually quite old. It goes back more than a century. I teach about the Spanish-American War and I'm pretty familiar with that history, but there was, there's a huge piece of it that I never understood, that I never knew, that's not in any of the books. During this period, the United States made a huge decision. When the Senate began its epochal debate, which I'll talk about in a moment, one senator started out by saying, this is the greatest question that has ever been presented to the American people. It was. He was right. And it still is. But that question was not decided easily. This huge choice, we're not going to stop at the borders of North America. We're going to project our coercive and military power abroad, was made by very narrow margins. And the debate consumed the United States for several years. It was on the front pages of newspapers every day. Every single major political and intellectual figure in America took part in this debate. And the themes that come up in this debate have resonated all the way up to the present day. I never ceased to be amazed as I was going through the uh, congressional record and the newspapers and magazines of that era with uh, how astonishingly current all the arguments are. Every argument we make for intervention and every argument we make against intervention starts here. As I was reading through these debates, I thought, this sounds just like what we said when we were debating Vietnam, whether to get involved in Central America, whether to be involved in Iraq. In the history of American foreign policy, this is truly the mother of all debates. Although the big difference is, of course, the senators were so much more articulate then. <laughs> it's truly sobering to read through these speeches and see how beautifully crafted they are, how full of historical references they are, how insightful they are with references to Pliny the Elder and the Catiline conspiracy and things you probably wouldn't want to discuss with very many senators today. For those of you who were not in my recent lecture on the Spanish-American War, my History of American Intervention class, and might have forgotten that one class you took in high school about the Spanish-American War, 
Uh, let me just refresh your memory and set the scene for what was happening at that moment. Cuban patriots were rising up against Spanish rule in the late 1890s. At the same time, coincidentally, in New York City, William Randolph Hearst was pioneering what was then called yellow journalism, what we now call fake news. <laughs> Hearst's newspapers, which I painstakingly went through for many hours in the New York Public Library, essentially had the same rotating diet of stories. It was murder, suicide, child abuse, uh, and political corruption, and then it would start again. But with an entrepreneur's clever eye, Hearst realized that this cycle got a little stale after a while. The stories start to blend into each other. And as everyone in the news business knows, uh, the way to get people to tune in every day or buy a paper every day is to have what we call a running story, a story that's going every day. So you need to buy the next day's paper to find out what's going to happen. War is the best running story of all. And William Randolph Hearst understood this. He made a point of bringing to Americans uh, the extremes of brutality that Cuban people were suffering under Spanish oppression. Uh, I saw one story, for example, that took up an entire page with some quite graphic illustrations, truly heart-rending piece about a holding pen where suspect villagers were being held by uh, Spanish officers. They were not given food. They were not given medical care. There were no sanitary facilities. They were starving. They were sick. They were fly-covered. Uh, rodents were feeding on them. And the, the reporter at the peak of the story explains how he actually watched an, a mother and then a few minutes later her small baby die in front of his eyes in one of these holding pens. It later turned out this reporter had never even been in Cuba. <laughs> Hearst fed Americans a diet of this kind of fake news that drove them wild. His greatest coup of fake news, uh, of course, was the sinking of the USS Maine in Havana Harbor. His headline was, Sinking of the Maine was the work of an enemy. And he actually published on the front page a giant uh, drawing showing how the Spanish sunk the Maine. It took 70 years for the U.S. Navy to convene a review board under Admiral Hyman Rickover that concluded the Maine was blown up by a spark inside the furnace. But at the time, that kind of news was very effective. I fear it still is. So, armed with this outrage, the United States decided we should send troops to Cuba uh, to help the Cuban rebels defeat the Spanish. As we were doing this, our military planners realized that it was important for us to find and sink the Spanish fleet wherever it was in the world to be sure that that fleet would not attack the U.S. mainland in retribution for our attacks in Cuba. We discovered that the fleet was in a place that no American had ever heard of, and that was the Philippine Islands. Even President McKinley later said, I couldn't have told you where those darned islands were within a thousand miles. We did send a uh, squadron to the Philippines. We destroyed the Spanish fleet there. But then we didn't know what to do. Suddenly, there were the Philippines. We had never thought about the Philippines. This war was about Cuba. Suddenly, we found ourselves in a far-off part of the world. This brought Americans to a crucial moment. In 1890, the U.S. Census Bureau famously declared the American frontier closed. 
That meant there's no more land to settle inside North America. This brought us to a, a great crisis, to a great crossroads. What do we do now? You could argue the United States has been an expansionist nation ever since the Pilgrims landed. But we'd finally reached the extent of our North American continent. Should we then be satisfied and look inward and try to devote our energies to building up our nation? Or should we continue doing what we have been doing since the Pilgrims landed, and that is pushing further? At the end of 1898, the U.S. government imposed on Spain a treaty called the Treaty of Paris by which we acquired Spanish territories. We acquired Puerto Rico, Guam, the Philippines, for which we paid $20 million. Spain also had to surrender control over Cuba. So this was the great moment for us. But that treaty, the Treaty of Paris, had to be ratified by the U.S. Senate. That was the climax of this great debate. But the debate had begun even as the Americans were beginning their war in Cuba. A huge force arose in America, actually originally from Boston, uh, during 1898. It's one that doesn't appear in your history books, the Anti-Imperialist League. This organization had chapters all over America, held meetings in dozens of cities, circulated hundreds of thousands of leaflets and newsletters, and attracted some of the leading figures in America. So the vice presidents included Andrew Carnegie, the richest man in America, and a few people with whom you wouldn't expect to see Andrew Carnegie sitting around a table, like Jane Addams, the great social reformer, Samuel Gompers, the principal labor leader of that era, Booker T. Washington, the most prominent African-American of that period, intellectuals like William James, uh, politicians like uh, Democrat William Jennings Bryan, Republican Benjamin Harrison, the immediate past president, Grover Cleveland. All these people were involved in the anti-imperialist movement. The first meeting in American history to protest the policy of expansion abroad was held on June 15, 1898 in Faneuil Hall in Boston. And here is... Uh, a snippet from the opening speech by a Boston clergyman and theologian. The policy of imperialism threatens to change the temper of our people and to put us into a permanent attitude of arrogance, testiness, and defiance toward other nations. Once we enter the field of international conflict as a great military and naval power, we shall be one more bully among bullies. We shall only add one more to the list of oppressors of mankind. Uh, William Jennings Bryan, who was the leader of the Democratic Party at that time, was an even more vivid orator. Uh, he was steeped in biblical imagery, and uh, his speeches are quite potent. How about this one? When the desire to steal becomes uncontrollable in an individual, he is declared a kleptomaniac and is sent to an asylum. When the desire to grab land becomes uncontrollable in a nation, we are told that the currents of destiny are flowing through the hearts of men. And the American people are entering upon a manifest mission. Shame upon the logic which locks up the petty offender and enthrones grand larceny. So at the beginning of 1899, the Senate 
convened for its epochal 32-day debate over ratification of the Treaty of Paris. But it wasn't just about that treaty, and it wasn't just about the Philippines. It was about a much larger question. It's a question we're still arguing today. And that is, is it right for the United States, a country that was a former colony, that came to being by overthrowing the rule of an outside power, to be imposing its rule on other peoples? Is this the correct course for the United States? We debated that for several years at the turn of the century. The Senate took up the debate in these uh, important 32 days. And although a kind of resolution was reached, we're still struggling over whether this is the right thing for America to do. Let me uh, give you a sense of that wonderful debate. Senator William Mason of Illinois. For over a hundred years, every lover of liberty has pointed to this sentence. All just powers of government are derived from the consent of the governed. This sentence has been a pillar of fire by night and a cloud by day to the downtrodden and oppressed around the world. No, Mr. President, we will not amend that sentence now. Not liberty, Mr. President, for your family as I prescribe it. Not liberty for you or your children at my dictation. Not Austrian liberty for the Hungarians. Not Spanish liberty for Cuba. Not English liberty for the United States. I and not American liberty for the Philippines, but universal liberty. Universal liberty for which our fathers died. The answer then comes back from another a great imperialist figure from uh, Indiana, Albert Beveridge, another brilliant speaker who used rhetoric as the way to propel himself from poverty up to power. The opposition tells us that we ought not to govern a people without their consent. I answer, the rule of liberty, that all just government derives its authority from the consent of the governed, applies only to those who are capable of self-government. This, of course, had a heavy racial overtone. It meant that countries populated by white people can rule themselves, but those populated by anyone else need to be ruled by white people. And that was a, an argument that was repeatedly made during this debate. Two of the antagonists in this great Senate debate were both Republican senators from Massachusetts. One was Henry Cabot Lodge. Lodge was a key member of the imperialist triumvirate, you could call it. So he was the Mephistopheles behind the other senators and the real conceiver of the imperial project. Hearst was the mighty megaphone, and Theodore Roosevelt, of course, was the public face of the imperial project. So here's Henry Cabot Lodge. And ask yourself if this is not an argument we still hear today. I do not believe that this nation was raised up for nothing. I have faith that it has a great mission in the world, a mission of good, a mission of freedom. I believe that it can live up to that mission. Therefore, I want to see it step forward boldly and take its place at the head of nations. To which his Republican colleague, George Frisbee Hoare, cried back, you have no right at the cannon's mouth to impose on an unwilling people your declaration of independence and your constitution and your notions of freedom and notions of what is good. This is the same 
debate we have been having ever since. During this period, as the Senate was opening its debate on the Philippines, Rudyard Kipling uh, wrote and published his famous poem, The White Man's Burden. Actually, the full title of that poem is The White Man's Burden, The U.S. in the Philippines. It's written specifically for this moment. Take up the white man's burden. Send forth the best you breed. Go bind your sons to exile to serve your captives' need. To wait in heavy harness on fluttered folk and wild, your new-caught sullen peoples, half devil and half child. During this period, Mark Twain emerged as a particularly vituperative critic of imperialism. He said that Americans who were fighting in foreign wars were using a bandit's musket under a polluted flag. In fact, he wanted to change the flag of the United States to replace the stars with skull and crossbones symbols. (laughs) At one point, he lamented, It was impossible to save the great republic. She was rotten to the core. Lust of conquest had long ago done its work. Trampling upon the helpless abroad had taught her by a natural process to endure with apathy the like at home. Other intellectuals became leading figures in this debate. And it's always impressive to see uh, brilliant college professors emerge and shape the course of history. One of them was William Graham Sumner, now thought of as the founder of the school of, of, of the uh, discipline of sociology, and not incidentally the inventor of the term ethnocentrism. This is a line that he wrote more than 100 years ago. Ask yourself how true this came. The great foe of democracy now and in the near future is plutocracy. Every year that passes brings out this antagonism more distinctly. It is to be the social war of the 20th century. In that war, militarism, expansionism, and imperialism will all favor plutocracy. Therefore, expansionism and imperialism are a grand onslaught on democracy. Now, President McKinley had to square this difficult geopolitical circle. It was his job to explain to Americans why it was right for the first time in our history to send American soldiers to a foreign land and shoot down people who honestly believed that they were fighting for their own freedom and national independence. He he came to Boston and made a speech at a grand banquet. And he used an explanation that still resonates. Did we need their permission to perform a great act for humanity? We had it in every aspiration of their minds, in every hope of their hearts. It takes us back to this missionary view that the United States has discovered a wonderful key to the prosperous, democratic, free society, and how churlish and selfish it would be for us to keep that secret to ourselves. It's our job to spread it around the world, and the people who need it the most are the ones so backward and primitive that they don't even realize they need our help. That's the line that McKinley was predicating in that period, and, and it, still, it still resonates. 
So the Senate debate, as I said, went on for more than a month. During that month, fighting began in the Philippines. Uh, it broke out just as the vote was about to happen, leading a number of senators to suspect that this was more than just coincidence. As soon as news arrived in Washington that fighting had broken out in the Philippines, uh, naturally some senators were more moved to vote in favor of the expansionist project. I believe that the Americans, and particularly President McKinley, truly felt that the Filipinos would welcome us. Uh, the idea that the Filipinos had been fighting against Spanish rule for years and were not ready to change one foreign ruler for another never occurred to American leaders. We felt that since the United States was so completely different from any other imperial power, everyone would welcome us. But in fact, of course, the, uh, the Filipinos, like so many other peoples, viewed us just like any other interventionist power, just the opposite of what we had expected. So the final vote on the Treaty of Paris uh, was a cliffhanger. It went down to the last day. Newspapers were speculating. How many senators on this side? How many senators on the other side? Uh, the McKinley administration, through Lodge and Vice President Garrett Hobart, was very active in, uh, let's say, distributing emoluments among senators. Uh, one immediately became a federal judge after the uh, vote. Another one had the, took over the naming of all the postmasters in his home state. So normal political means were used, among other great uh, philosophical arguments, to uh, affect the debate. The final vote on this crucial question, and I repeat, it wasn't just on a treaty or about one country. It was about the future direction of the United States. The Treaty of Paris was ratified with one vote more than the required two-thirds majority. Then the anti-imperialists took this case to the Supreme Court. They argued that it was unconstitutional for Americans to rule people anywhere without granting them basic constitutional rights. The Supreme Court rejected that argument by a vote of five to four. And the, the Chief Justice, who wrote the opinion, had also participated in the majority in the Plessy versus Ferguson decision a couple of years earlier, which certified the uh, constitutionality of segregation. It actually made sense, since if you believe that some people inside the United States have more rights than others, you could also believe that other peoples that we govern might have rights or might not. So you had a one-vote cushion in the U.S. Senate and then a one-vote margin in the Supreme Court. It was a very narrowly decided choice. It reflects the division in the American soul that persists to this day. We are, as a nation, both imperialist and isolationist. We want every country to guide itself, but we also want to guide the world. Those are not compatible views. You can't hold both of them, but we do. We've never decided what John Winthrop meant back in 1630 when he famously said, uh, we shall be as a city upon a hill when the eyes of all people are upon us. So did he mean we should go out into a sinful world and redeem it? Make it godly? Or did he mean we should build a virtuous society at home and hope that others would copy it? We still want to believe both of those things, even though they're contradictory. This is a pattern that I see all the way from Theodore Roosevelt to Barack Obama. They all begin their presidencies very excited about using 
military power to achieve their ends in the world. Then, as their terms proceed, they begin to see the trouble that this brings. And towards the end of their terms, they tend to be less open to intervention. So Theodore Roosevelt was a great example. Here was the greatest nation grabber in American history. When he suddenly came to power after McKinley's assassination, woe to any nation on which the U.S. had ever cast a covetous eye. There were speculation in the newspapers about where we're going next. Will we annex Guatemala or Nicaragua? Are we going to try to take over Canada? Which slices of China are we going to take? Could there be colonies in Africa open to us? But Theodore Roosevelt didn't do any of that. After his first intervention to take land for the Panama Canal, he never did it again. He moved on to other issues, principally confronting big business and working on protecting the national, natural environment. And later in life, he always liked to point out that he never ordered a single, he never ordered an intervention in which a single life was lost. Presidents do tend to calm down on intervention as they uh, spend time in power, which is, I think, a positive thing, although you wish every president wouldn't have to learn the same lesson over again and take several years and several wars to do so. So for me, that is the episode that I'm trying to bring back. I think it also has a great message for us today. I think all of us, regardless of where we are in this debate, can take inspiration from the titans who squared off at this moment. Only once before in American history, at the founding of our nation, have so many brilliant Americans been so intensely engaged in a debate so fraught with meaning for all humanity. During the Senate debate, it was pointed out that this question was even more important than the question of slavery, because the slavery question only affected people that lived inside the United States. This decision was going to shake the whole world. Those of us in particular who are uh, critical of some of the directions of American foreign policy can also take from this debate the inspiration of realizing that we're not making this up. Actually, we're in a rich American tradition, which in some ways has been denied to us by the disappearance of this story from our history books. Uh, we're standing on the shoulders of titans. It's wonderful, I think, for us to realize that this is a debate that is deeply rooted in American history and that our position has a very rich American tradition. You're listening to Stephen Kinzer on Theodore Roosevelt, Mark Twain, and American Empire. This is Independent Alternative Radio. To get copies of this program, just call us, 1-800-444-1977. Again, 1-800-444-1977. Or online, our website, alternativeradio.org. That's alternativeradio.org. So, Mark Twain. I had grown up with what I now realize is a mistaken and partial view of Mark Twain, which may have been the view that many of you grew up with. So I thought of him as a gentle old guy, beloved by all, who had curly white hair and rocked on his front porch, told funny jokes, uh, and wrote uh, lovely novels. Well, that's a piece of Mark Twain. But Mark Twain was vituperative. He was bitter. His writings were poisonous. Uh, so I feel now that we've bleached the image of Mark Twain. We've made him too, uh, too much into a pleasant uh, dinner guest, when actually uh, 
who was not a friendly dinner guest at all, as Theodore Roosevelt came to realize. Finally, I had a wonderful discovery in learning about a person who I had never heard of before, who also was a great figure in America in his time. Karl Schurz. He fought in the 1848 revolution in Germany as a teenager. After uh, that rebellion was crushed, he had to flee. He came to America. He became an abolitionist, uh, an admirer of Abraham Lincoln. He was a Civil War general. Uh, Then he went on to become a U.S. senator from uh, Missouri, uh, first German-born U.S. senator. He was Secretary of the Interior. And in the late 19th century, he was the preeminent American campaigner against corruption for good government, for civic virtue. And he was certainly known to every literate American in that period. So Karl Schurz was an extremely thoughtful and articulate anti-imperialist. Uh, his speeches are uh, wonderfully shaped and deeply penetrating beyond the issues of the moment to the great themes of American life. On January 2nd, 1899, Carl Schurz was the speaker at the Convocation of the University of Chicago. Carl Schurz delivered a stirring 11,000-word address <laughs> in which he listed every argument in favor of expansion and overseas wars and imperialism and demolished them. The economic argument, the strategic argument, the moral argument, the political argument. Today I'm not going to do the whole 11,000 words. (laughs) This is an admonition for today. This is Carl Schurz speaking to us. Let us raise high the flag of our country, not as an emblem of reckless adventure and greedy conquest, of betrayed professions, and broken pledges of criminal aggressions and arbitrary rule over subject populations. But the old, the true flag, the flag of George Washington and Abraham Lincoln, the flag of government of, for, and by the people, the flag of national faith held sacred and of national honor unsullied, the flag of human rights and of good example to all nations, the flag of true civilization, peace, and goodwill to all men. Thanks. Great to be here. Oh, thank you. I wanted to talk about foreign aid, because there are diseases, easily preventable diseases, that people in developing nations get that we haven't seen in the West for 50 years, diseases that our pets don't even get. And so I'm all for like not waging wars, But what if we wage wars against poverty or against diseases or other types of humanitarian aid causes? Then is American intervention acceptable? The United States is always going to be intervening in the world just because of our size and our power. It's inevitable. So the key is not to try to prevent this, but to try to shape it in a positive way. You're absolutely right that the United States has a magnificent role to play in the world, uh, as long as it's not confrontational, as long as it's working with other countries instead of against them. One of the things that I notice as I travel around the world is that despite all of our sins, huge numbers of people have tremendous admiration for the United States. They admire us. They want what we have. They want to have a society like ours. 
the United States has a great story to tell in the world, but we're not telling it. We've given up, essentially, on trying to promote that aspect of our society, which I think is the essence of our society. All of our libraries and America houses and consulates are being turned into fortresses or closed. And now we're giving too many people in the world the idea that the face of America is night raids, drone attacks, Guantanamo, Abu Ghraib, foreign interventions. This is not who we are. Uh, but it's the face that we show too often. Our foreign policy has become heavily militarized. I would love to see a shift from our foreign policy away from military toward diplomatic. You know, uh, Robert Gates, the Secretary of Defense, famously told uh, his colleague, Secretary of State Hillary Clinton, once that uh, he said, I have more people in my military bands than you have diplomats in the entire State Department. It's true. That gives you a sense of how imbalanced uh, our approach to the world is. For many years, the United States felt invulnerable. Uh, we understood that our foreign interventions created blowback, but it didn't reach our shores. In the modern world, that isolation is over. We need to be thinking more seriously about cooperating with other countries. And allies, partners, only emerge when they like you, when they admire you, when they want to help you, when they feel a sense of common interest. And if we don't project a sense that we are a country that people want to be allied with, they won't ally with us. You know, how many countries in the world are allies of China? China's not a country that automatically makes governments or nations or people think, I want to be like you, I want to be your friend. But America's the opposite. We draw people by who we are. And that's why we, it's so important to show people who we really are. A couple questions. One is, how did you, could you just get, tell us how you chose this particular book? What was the mm -hmm. spark that got you on this? And second of all, since we're at Brown, and Brown's most famous diplomat is John Hay. John Hay Library, he coined the term Splendid Little War, I believe, to describe the Spanish-American War. And did he play any part in your narrative, mm -hmm. in your book? Well, I read a lot about the Spanish-American War. I know a lot about it, and I teach about it every year. And this story, to me, is a huge part of the Spanish-American War story. You can't tell the story without this, but this piece never appears. And it's somewhere in, in a book I mentioned, I, I saw a mention uh, that somebody made a speech at something called the Anti-Imperialist League, which I had never heard of. Then I started reading and un began understanding the scope of this institution. And then, what were the forces that gave birth to the Anti-Imperialist League? Now, what was the debate? And this led me to realize how close the debate was. Then I began plunging myself into the original sources and realized that this was an enormous episode that shook a, na a nation and shook the world. People were watching the Senate debate all over the world. Diplomats posted in Washington were sending out reports every day. So I came to realize there was a big piece of this story missing. And I set out to find it. It's pretty hidden. As for John Hay, he did play a role in this. So he was Secretary of State under um, both McKinley and Roosevelt, as Roosevelt kept him on after McKinley's assassination. Um, John Hay, of course, had gone, seen the entire second half of the 19th century. He had gone from being Private Secretary to Abraham Lincoln to being Secretary of State 50 years later under 
McKinley. You know what? Brownie was known as Hashish Johnny. I'm not going, in, I'm not going any further into that one. But he, he had some interesting aspects uh, to his life. I'll tell you another one. Uh, while he was working with Henry Cabot Lodge to push the Treaty of Paris through the Senate, he was having an affair with Lodge's wife. <laughs> I think that Hay uh, was one of the more reluctant imperialists. He did support, naturally, the project. He was the Secretary of State. But I think he also did understand some of the problems that this might cause. Hay was a calming influence on both McKinley and Roosevelt. He was also a great writer and a great phrase maker. That's why he came up with this wonderful phrase for the Spanish-American War, a splendid little war. I wonder how much of the change in our foreign policy do you think it's because of the priorities of the plutocrats? I think quite a bit, depending on how you define plutocrats. Uh, certainly, uh, the, what we call the defense industry is a very powerful force in shaping American policy. Every time one of these giant uh, procurement projects for something like the F-35 aircraft is approved by Congress, the first thing the defense contractors do is slice up the contract and give pieces of it to every district of a congressman who has an important vote in Washington. It means that the congressmen are then immobilized. They can't vote against these projects because otherwise they're throwing people out of work in their own districts. And I, I can sympathize with that, but it's a fiendishly effective technique, especially when combined with the campaign contributions to uh, favored senators. In addition, the economic motive has always been an important part of the American push abroad. It's too simple to say that uh, we fight all our foreign wars for plunder, but there's always been an aspect of that. This argument comes very strongly to the fore. The resources of the Philippines were a great topic during the Senate debate. In fact, Senator Albert Beveridge, the only senator who actually went to the Philippines and was a great imperialist, came back and gave a list of all the products that the Philippines produced and how, talked about how rich the land was. And he actually held up a gold nugget that he said he had picked out of a river in the Philippines. You couldn't have had a more graphic image of what American foreign policy uh, is all about. So the resources of the Philippines were important to us, but also the markets. One of the things that comes very clear as you read through the newspapers and magazines of that era, as I did, is that an obsession in that period was what was called glut. So American farmers and manufacturers were producing more than Americans could consume. And this was causing problems in the United States. That was the root of labor un upheaval. We had strikes. We had Pinkerton shooting down labor leaders on the streets in, in, many, in many cities. There, was wor there were worries about instability in the U.S. And the theme of these articles always at the end is, we need foreign markets. And you can't trade with Europe because Europe has tariff walls. You can't trade with European colonies because that was the whole point of taking colonies. You trade with them and no one else can. So we need colonies of our own. The Philippine market was seen as a, uh, as a great lure, but the big one was the China market. You hear about this all the time in these articles. It's a great Fata Morgana out there that the Philippines could be our springboard into the China market. And there were articles speculating on how many head of cattle we could sell in a year in China if we could get the Chinese to eat beef instead of rice and vegetables? <laughs> or if we could get the Chinese to wear cotton clothing? How much cotton could you export in a year? 
These were great, uh, fascinating uh, prospects for American business people. In the current age, foreign policy is aimed at protecting our security, and that's economic in part. I think that's actually a, a reasonable goal for foreign policy of any country, to protect your national economy. Uh, I like to think that the United States should define its vital interests down very narrowly, because vital interests are the ones you want to go to war for. But protecting the sea lanes, for example, on which our economy depends, is a very legitimate vital interest of the United States. On the other hand, we sometimes follow policies for economic purposes, and then after the economic purposes are gone, we still keep following them. One of the great weaknesses of American foreign policy is its lack of agility. We don't change when the world changes. And a great example, talking about economics, is the Persian Gulf. We have ships all over the Persian Gulf. I was just there over the winter break, and it's, it's a narrow waterway just made for confrontation. We have our whole fifth fleet based in Bahrain. Why are we there? Well, we're there for two reasons. One is to keep the Soviet Union out, and the other is to assure that the Saudi oil on which our economy depends can get to us safely. But neither of those applies anymore. Actually, the oil that goes through the Persian Gulf, that Saudi oil that we're spending billions of dollars to protect, it's going to China. We're, we're paying to keep the Persian Gulf safe for Chinese and Japanese and, and Indian oil. Uh, so the economic motive is always there. It's not the one we hear about. As I mentioned earlier, the humanitarian motive is the one that people like to trot out when they want to promote interventions. And whatever, whatever the real motivation is, uh, I would always advise a president, cloak it in some kind of bogus humanitarian concern or real humanitarian concern, and then you'll get people to support it. Uh, but behind that uh, lies much more. Were there any antecedents to this uh, debate in the conquest of Native American lands moving west and south? America's progression to empire came in phases. And I would single out three. I'd say there were three phases. The first phase, as you point out, was what I would call continental empire. We cleared out the Indians or put them in reservations. We captured half of Mexico and we created our empire in North America. The second stage came as a result of the debate that I spoke about today. That brought us from being a continental empire to being an offshore empire or an overseas empire. And then after World War II, we took the final step and became a global empire. So you're right, expansionism was not anything new as the expansion of the United States into the rest of North America also constituted expansionism. The Mexican War did arouse controversy, uh, and Abraham Lincoln was uh, one of the few who spoke up as a member of Congress. It's one of the reasons that he lost. You know, Abraham Lincoln served one term in Congress and then was defeated. One of the main reasons was his opposition to the Mexican War. I don't think there was much opposition to American policies toward the Indians, largely for racial reasons. Very few Americans would have thought that Indians were in a position to govern themselves or have any kind of civilized life. They were uh, barbarians and headhunters like... Uh, Theodore Roosevelt would have called him. In fact, he had a famous line, I don't believe that the only good Indian is a dead Indian. But I do think that nine out of ten are, and I wouldn't argue too much about the tenth. <laughs> so that kind of attitude, I think, prevented any um, 
sympathy for the Indians or for the Mexicans, there was a, I wouldn't want to say a crescendo, there was a peep, there were a few peeps of protest. But uh, that intervention happened very quickly, and in fact, Polk didn't even run for re-election after he had accomplished it. So uh, I think the real debate over expansionism did not begin until we began to expand overseas. Don't forget that manifest destiny, that phrase was coined to mean it's our manifest destiny to fill up North America. Everybody in America believed that, with the exception of the poor victims. But it was when we decided to push beyond our geographical boundaries that we set off a national debate. You worked for the New York Times as a writer, and you touched upon the differences from the time that you worked there and today. Do you think things are worse, better, the same? I think there have been great moments in the history of the American press, but not enough of them. I was at the New York Times during the run-up to the Iraq War. It was very disturbing to me to see how the U.S., how the New York Times was beating the war drums with aluminum tubes and uh, uranium from Niger and all of this. In fact, it was, it was a factor in my decision to leave the New York Times. As a New York Times reporter, I wasn't able to say anything about what I really thought about the Iraq preparations and how, what nonsense it was that we were printing in our newspaper. But I thought if I, were, if I weren't at the New York Times, I would be allowed to say that. So that was a factor in leading me to want to liberate myself. The great change in coverage of foreign news since I was a foreign correspondent is that so much foreign news reporting that you see in the American press now is written from Washington. I always like to look at the dateline. So if I'm getting the analysis of what's really happening in Mali and it's datelined Washington, I don't read it. Because I know how those reporters operate. You've got a story to write. So you call the State Department. Then you call the Defense Department. You might call someone you know in the White House. You might call a couple of embassies. And then you call the think tank expert. Then you say, well, I've covered every, every base. I've got a full story now. That's not correct. You're talking to all people who are in the same echo chamber. And that is very pernicious. So uh, the days are gone when it was possible to do what I used to do, for example. I can remember in Istanbul, from Istanbul calling my boss in New York and saying, I think I'd like to go to Uzbekistan for two weeks. And the answer the question came back, so what's happening in Uzbekistan? I said, I don't know. Got to find out, but I'll get you some great stories. And he said, fine, take a photographer. That doesn't happen anymore. Unless there's some hard news happening, nobody gets sent. And this is why I hate news. I can admit this now after so many years as a newsman. Uh, because news is a big distraction. News is what's happening today, right now. But that's not what's important. Two other things are more important than what's happening today. One is, what happened yesterday? How did we get here? Why is this happening? And the other is, what's going to happen tomorrow? What does it mean, what just happened? Uh, so I'm dedicated more into looking at the causes and effects rather than the actual episode. When you're so obsessed with the daily news cycle, you never ask those questions. And that's the whole point. I try to break out of that syndrome. Just an observation, like we talked about, about uh, Manifest Destiny. You know, this country was founded on that concept, if you look at it. I mean, here are these people left England because of religious oppression, came here and created theocracies in every state except for this one. So it's, it's pretty much ingrained in the psyche of probably all people to some extent. And I guess the idea is 
it's probably comes down to an individual assessing that and finding out how we participate in that, basically. I, I think you're right, but I would just take exception to one thing you said, and that is it's, it's the same for all peoples. I think there's something special about Americans. Who are the people that would have wanted to come over here? I read Jim Webb's great book about the Scotch-Irish. That's his people. These were fighters. They were fighters in Scotland. They were fighters in Ireland. They came over here. Andrew Jackson and all these people came out of that same fighting tradition. Americans have a desire to win, to command, to dominate. Not everybody nation in the world feels that way. Americans are brought up with Calvinist ideals. One is the world is divided between good and evil. Many people in many cultures don't learn that. They, they're taught that we're all somewhat good and somewhat evil, and these qualities come out in different proportions according to different circumstances. We don't believe that. Calvinists also believe that it's not enough to sit home and hope that bad things stop happening and good things begin happening. You have to go out in the world and do God's work. We have a real missionary complex. Uh, let me just close with this observation. It goes back to George Washington's farewell address. So this speech is sometimes uh, dismissed as quaint and old-fashioned and applying to an era that's long gone. But I don't see it that way. To me, it's full of great wisdom for America. So he listed in his farewell address in 1796 the traps that America should avoid if it wants to avoid being dragged down like other great nations have been. Here are some of them. Frequent collisions, obstinate, envenomed, and bloody contests, overgrown military establishments, excessive partiality for one foreign nation and excessive dislike of another, the illusion of an imaginary common interest in cases where no real common interest exists, and projects of hostility instigated by pride, ambition, and other sinister and pernicious motives. Now, in his speech at the end, Washington admits that he realizes uh, Americans are not going to pay attention to his rules. I dare not hope they will make the strong and lasting impression I would wish. Nonetheless, he insists on proclaiming the one principle that he says will prevent our nation from running the course which has hitherto marked the destiny of nations. Give to mankind the magnanimous and too novel example of a people always guided by an exalted justice and benevolence. Can it be that providence has not connected the permanent felicity of a nation with its virtue? I'm going to leave you with that one, our founder. Thank you. Thank you. You were just listening to Stephen Kinzer on Theodore Roosevelt, Mark Twain, and American Empire. He spoke at Brown University in Providence, Rhode Island in 2017. This classic from the AR Archive was recorded in 2017 at Brown University in Providence, Rhode Island. Stephen Kinzer was a New York Times correspondent and bureau chief in Nicaragua, Germany, and Turkey. He currently teaches at Brown. He's the author of many books, including Overthrow, All the Shah's Men, The Brothers, and The True Flag. This program is produced by Alternative Radio, 
We are an independent nonprofit in our 37th year. We're supported solely by individuals just like you. We feature such voices as Noam Chomsky, Medea Benjamin, and Chris Hedges. To access our complete audio and book catalog, just go to our website, alternativeradio.org. Again, our website where we are podcasting, alternativeradio.org. To get copies of today's program, Stephen Kinzer on Theodore Roosevelt, Mark Twain, and American Empire, and for Howard Zinn's classic book, A People's History of the United States, call us 1-800-444-1977. That's 1-800-444-1977. Or online, our website, alternativeradio.org. That's alternativeradio.org. Printed transcripts, PDFs, and MP3s of this program are free of charge. Just call us, 1-800-444-1977. Joe Ritchie is our general manager and editor. I'm David Barsamian. Thank you for listening.